Let's get started right from the top. Um, just uh, look ahead, and as someone is reading one verse, someone please turn to the next. And let's uh, try and get through these as efficiently as possible. Not that we want to rush through them, but we don't want to have a lot of uh, dead space in between them. So who's got Genesis 18? John has got it. Let's go ahead and uh, kick it off. Genesis 18, 17, 18, said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? Very good. All the nations. Genesis 22, 17 through 18. Who's got that? There we go. All the nations. Thank you. Uh, Genesis 26.4. Barbara? Oh, sorry, I looked at the wrong place. Sorry. Oh, who's got Genesis 26.4? Deb? I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offsprings all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the nations. You see where we're going with this? All right. Uh, oh, Psalm 67. 1 through 4. All the nations. All right, I'll go ahead and do Psalm 72. Uh, you got it? Which 11 to something? 11 to 19. You got it? Um, may all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him, for he deserves the needy, delivers, sorry. He delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems. Their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Amen. All nations. Okay, Psalm 117.1. Margie? Praise the Lord, all nations. Stall him, all peoples. Very good. All nations, all peoples. Uh, Isaiah 2, 2-4. to four. Ronnie? In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. 
Very good. All right, and I'm going to go ahead with Isaiah 66, 15 to 24. This is a long one. Uh, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger and fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh, and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pole, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Jabin, to the coastlands afar off, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations." And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Thus ends the Old Testament readings. Now, let's, uh, we got uh, six New Testament readings. Who's got Matthew 24, 14? Go ahead, Deb. Very good. Mark 13, 9 through 10. I'll go ahead. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be eaten, beaten, excuse me, beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but whatever is given you in that first hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I went on to 13. That's all right. Uh, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. Very good. Mark 16, 15 through 16. Thank you, Bryce. Luke 24, 46 through 47. Margie. Sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. 
Very good. And I'll go ahead and uh, close out with our final reading, which is kind of a strange combination there. Acts 2, 1 through 13, and verse 41. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to, Cy belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues and the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. All right, today we will be talking about, anyone guess? All nations. <laughs> we will be talking about Pentecost. All right, we finished uh, our overview of the life and ministry and death and resurrection and ascension of Christ, and then we uh, took a brief uh, break and talk about some of the secular sources about the life of Christ, and uh, today we will continue throughout the history of the New Testament Christian Church with uh, the beginning of the Apostolic Church, which is at Pentecost, and uh, as we read in our Old Testament and New Testament passages, you can kind of see where my theme is going with this when we're talking about all nations. Before we get into it, let's open with prayer, please. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, we thank you for the rain that we've had, we thank you for the beauty of your creation and the opportunity we have to come uh, to gather this morning to learn more about you and to worship you. We ask that you would give us an open mind to your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so, through these readings from the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, what is the common thread? Jim, you already said it. All nations. All right. Does, does it seem from these passages and just from what you know about the Bible in general that it was ever God's intention to exclude non-biological Israelites from the redemptive story? No, absolutely not. Now, by the first century A.D., first century B.C., was it the attitude among many Palestinian Jews that God had con uh, intended to exclude non-Israelites from the redemptive story. It seems that way, doesn't it? But the general overview of the Bible, uh, what we see in the Old Testament, what they had with them, and then, of course, what we see in the New Testament, that was never the case. At the top of your page, you see some funny-looking letters, uh, some Greek letters, and all of these passages that we read this morning, uh, I use the... the in the Old Testament, I'm referring to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, mainly because I have no idea how to write Hebrew letters. Um, but in all of these passages, Old Testament and New, this word 
is used uh, to describe the word nations. All right, and this is pronounced, I have it in parentheses there, it's pronounced ethnos, um, and you can see in our English language we get the word ethnicity from this word ethnos to describe a group of people. But probably more familiar to all of us is the Latin translation. If you go back to the 4th, 5th century AD when Jerome translated the Greek, uh, Greek manuscripts into the Latin tongue, we can get a sort of a closer familiarity with what they were thinking word-wise. All right, it's always good to understand the original languages, uh, but we get many more words from Latin than we do from Greek. And the word that Jerome used to translate this word ethnos is the word gentes. All right. Uh, there's another word that we get from ethnos, and that is, or actually, it's not, we don't get it from ethnos, but it's related to the word ethnos, and that is the word ethic, uh, as in the character and spirit of a people. Um, but that's uh, just a little bit of trivia. Now, these two words, ethnos and gentes, uh, these have been translated into English as nation. Now, there's a common thread running through all of this, but why do we translate these words, ethnos and gentes, as nation? When we think of a nation today, what's our first thought? Borders. Borders, absolutely. Very, yes, I'm glad you said that. I was hoping someone would say that instead of what I was thinking. Uh, when we hear the word nation today, we do think of borders. Um, and this is not how they thought of it in first century Palestine. Um, we might think of a nation as synonymous with the word country or state. Uh, there's a geographic, if you are uh, interested in a, a formal geographical study, I was a minor in geography in college, and there was a distinction made between a state and a nation and a nation state. All right. A state is the political boundaries, the uh, government, and its established sovereignty in a physical space. A nation, on the other hand, is much different. Uh, the term nation is historically translated, doesn't come from political boundaries or physical boundaries. Rather, it comes from familial connection. All right, in Greek, uh, as we see this word ethnos, we got the word ethnicity or a people of common descent. And ethnicity was extremely important in the ancient world, especially to first century Jews. Uh, in the antiquities of the Jews, Josephus spends uh, pages and pages and pages going over the ethnicities of the people of the world, going all the way back to Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And these nations were delineated not by political or physical boundaries, but uh, rather by the blood of each family. Uh, the Latin term that we use here often uh, is gentes, where we get our word gentiles. We get our word gentlemen. We get our word gentry. We get our word gender. We get our word genetics and gene. And all of these words, to include the word gentiles, have to do with familial descent. We get the word generation from gentes as well. These are all having to do with ancestry, familial descent, patrilineal. Uh, patrilineal or matrilineal bloodlines, not political boundaries. 
In fact, if you remember our discussion about the virgin birth, we talked about the nativity, right? The nativity, and I mentioned at this point that this, starting with the nativity was a natural starting point because both the word nativity and natural come from the word natus, which means being born. From natus, we get nativity and natural, but we also get the word nation. All right? So the, even the word nation has uh, allusions to this bloodline, to this uh, familial lineage, not to political boundaries, not to formally established state uh, sovereignty by treaty. Um, so this exercise in etymology is not just to uh, fill our minds with new information about words, but really I'm hoping to get the idea out of your heads that the word nation, um, in the first century especially, these words ethnos and gentes had nothing to do with political states. Rather, it had to do with families, it had to do with peoples, it had to do with bloodlines, it had to do with tribes, it had to do with clans, it had to do with uh, nations of people. Um, <clears throat> this is, ever since the Peace of Westphalia, we have thought about nations completely differently than they do back then. The Peace of Westphalia is in 1648. Uh, does anyone know about the Peace of Westphalia or the Treaty of Westphalia? John, can you... Briefly, briefly give us an overview on it. I don't want to spend too much time on it. Except I think it ended the Hundred Years' War and it also kind of ended, put it into the uh, Holy Roman Empire. That's, close. Yeah, close. Uh, Thirty Years' War. Not, not, yeah, there's a whole bunch of years' war. The Seven Years' War, the Thirty Years' War, the Hundred Years' War. The, all of these uh, early modern uh, wars that were going on tended to attach timelines to them as if they planned it out. Uh, but the Thirty Years' War... Uh, ended in 1648 with the Peace of Westphalia. And what happened at the Peace of Westphalia is these nations all got together and Congress assembled, and they determined through diplomatic measures how they would come to peace. And a large part of this peace was determined by formally establishing lines in the sand, as it were, that would determine actual boundaries, and each nation would respect those physical boundaries. Prior to that, there was not really a very uh, good concept of lines in the sand as we think of them for boundaries. Boundaries were very, very fluid, depending on who was in charge and how much they could conquer and how much they could defend uh, themselves. But with the Peace of Westphalia, all of these nations, it was the original World War, <clears throat> all of these nations got together and said, okay, we're going to respect these physical boundaries. And since then, nations began to uh, be identified with lines in the sand before they were identified with just generally the, the, the general fluidity of social movement. <clears throat> um, so, so today, while we think of a people being, being defined by boundaries, we think of Americans being defined as those people living within the boundaries of the United States, Germans are those people living within the boundaries of Germany, Japanese are those people living within the boundaries of Japan, Prior to the Peace of Westphalia, and really through all of human history, boundaries were determined instead by the people themselves. Yes, John. I was just going to say, Andrew, in, in, we still use the word nation in the older sense when we describe Indian groups. We do, America. yes. There's, there's still a lot of senses in which we describe uh, the peoples by the term nations. Uh, it's not completely gone, but I think in general, our... our 
default understanding of the word nation is associated with nation states or uh, groups of people defined by political process or political treaty. Yes, Melissa? When I think of nations, I think of culture. That's a very good way of thinking it. Correct, yeah, and that's, that's closer to how uh, nations was being thought of in the first century. It was more, uh, what had, to, had to do with cultural aspects. One of the definitions of a nation, again, from the uh, formally geographical term standpoint, is a group of people with a common philosophical past with a common political goal, all right? So it doesn't have anything to do with boundaries, but it's a common philosophical past which has to do with culture, theology, all this uh, sort of uh, history, all of these different things, and with a common political goal. And that doesn't mean uh, a constitution necessarily, but that they are uh, interested in preserving themselves in a state, uh, in some sort of state. And by state, I don't mean drafted up by a constitution. State has to do with the idea of stability or uh, standing or uh, being able to persevere. So uh, we've talked enough about nations, I think, and I'm, I'm giving a lot of background on this, but again, with our Old Testament and New Testament readings, we discussed all nations. And I think it's important that we keep this in mind when we're thinking about the all nations that the Bible is talking about. Now, as we're discussing Pentecost, I think it's also important that we discuss what Pentecost historically was to the first century Jew, um, not just we don't, we don't want to just understand what this Pentecost was about, the one we're particularly studying, but what Pentecost in general was, this annual celebration, which was called, Paul? Harvest, uh, the Festival of the First Fruits. Thank you. I, I knew he knew that because he mentioned it in one of, our, uh, one of our meetings the other day, so I knew he knew that. And I actually got it wrong when you, <laughs> when you asked the question. I, I mentioned the wrong name. Uh, yes, the Festival of the First Fruits, also called the Festival of the Weeks. Uh, or also called the Festival of Seven Weeks. The reason it was called this uh, is because uh, it was the uh, it was seven weeks after the first sickle touched the first uh, piece of grain. Uh, this particular Pentecost, in my opinion, is uh, underemphasized in the modern church. Uh, we know about Pentecost and we respect it, uh, but it seems to me, and maybe this is just me, that the missions of Paul receive more homage than does this uniquely historic event. Uh, maybe it's because we are Gentiles and we have a special place in our heart for that missionary to the Gentiles. Um, again, this might be just me, but when uh, I was growing up learning about Pentecost, the emphasis didn't seem to be on the all nations aspect, but rather it seemed to be on the 3,000 souls. Uh, when we hear about Pentecost, is it just me? Do we hear, do we focus on the 3,000 souls or do we focus on the all nations? Okay, well, it could be just me, like I said. But when I was, when I was learning about Pentecost, the, the focus invariably seemed to be on the number of souls won that day versus where those souls came from. Um, and so, the, the but irrespective of that, the whole idea of the Pentecost, again, seems to be just an event in passing leading up to the greater mission of, Rome, of, of Paul to the Gentiles. Uh, this is, I'm not accusing anyone of holding this view, but it's one of, just one of those things that seems to me uh, that goes on when we discuss the, discuss the event of Pentecost. 
But uh, August Neander, who is a, a giant of church history and theology, um, has called the Pentecost, quote, next to the appearance of the Son of God on earth, the most significant event. It is the starting point of the apostolic church and of that new spiritual life and humanity which proceeded from him. Uh, and which since has been spreading and working and will continue to work until the whole, hu whole of humanity is transformed into the image of Christ. Uh, August Neander is a very famous German theologian back in the 18th century, uh, and as far as I can tell, very orthodox. <clears throat> he considers Pentecost to be next to Christ's ministry, next to his death and resurrection, next to everything about Christ, he considers Pentecost to be the most important event in the history of the church. Um, as uh, I believe is rightly so, uh, in the liturgical calendar, Pentecost is rec recognized as a continuation of the Easter miracle or of Resurrection Sunday. Sunday. It takes place how many days after? 50, yes, hence we have the day of uh, Pentecost has to do with the number of 50. Not because of Resurrection Sunday, but actually because of uh, what we'll see here uh, in a little bit about the uh, Festival of Weeks. It occurs uh, eight, uh, seven Sundays after the resurrection and ten days <coughs> excuse me, after the ascension. Uh, we remember that Christ, after his resurrection, appeared to more than 500 of his disciples over a period of 40 days, and the Emmanuel, God with us, left us with these words of encouragement. I am with you always to the end of the age. Uh, the Gospel of John records Jesus' promise of being with us always uh, with the promise of the paraclete, or anyone know what paraclete means, John? Yes, uh, I think that's a more literal translation. It's often translated as the helper, um, coming to minister and to assist his disciples upon Jesus' earthly departure. Uh, there's one historical account of this particular Pentecost, and that is from the Gentile uh, historian and physician, Luke. Uh, however, all of the Gospels contain a prophetic account of the Pentecost. John's is the most obvious with its explicit, explicit prophecies about this paraclete, this helper, this one coming alongside. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke also foretell this event of the paraclete uh, just a little bit more implicitly. Now, uh, it's important to note that all of these events, all of these prophecies were written uh, after Pentecost actually happened, so it's more accurate to say that these are historical accounts of a prophecy, uh, unlike the destruction of the temple, that was a prophecy that was uh, recorded, but it had not yet happened by the time Matthew, Mark, Luke were written. So just a little bit of a distinction there. Uh, the annual observance of, Pente of Pentecost goes back to the law of Moses, in which, like we said, it is called the Festival of Weeks because it is counted seven weeks from the day that the first sickle touches standing grain. It is also called the Feast of First Fruits because it is on this day the first Fruits of the grain sheaves are baked and offered back to God. It is also called the Feast of Reaping for the same reason. Uh, based on calculations from the Talmud, there also arose a Jewish tradition that this day of Pentecost was also an anniversary of the first giving of the law on Mount Sinai, which was 50 days after the beginning of the Exodus. Now, remember the Passover happened, and then... Pharaoh said, okay, now y'all can really leave. 
And uh, then 50 days after that, that's, this is the calculation that they came up with, the, the law was given to Moses for the first time. Uh, it is also used in the Septuagint, this word Pentecost, is also used to refer to the year of Jubilee. <clears throat> the year of Jubilee is every 50 years, there was a, is it, is it accurate to call it a sabbatical year? Uh, every, every seven sevens, 49, there was a year afterwards, the 50th year, called Jubilee, in which all debts were forgiven, all slaves were freed, and then the cycle would start over the next year. Uh, so I'm, I don't, I'm not sure if that means anything, just to let you know that Pentecost was used in the Septuagint to refer to that as well. Uh, metaphorically, of course, uh, the first Christian Pentecost points to the first Christian harvest in which 3,000 3, souls were saved. These first fruits of the Holy Spirit heard the gospel preached by Peter and they were baptized and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Uh, Josephus, in his Antiquities of the Jews, speaks of a different celebration of Pentecost. Not this one, but a different one. <coughs> Excuse me during the reign of King Herod. And here, uh, Josephus confirms the multitude of Jews that were present in Jerusalem for this celebration. Uh, Josephus writes, And when that day was come, many ten thousands, many ten thousands of the people were gathered together about the temple. In another place, Josephus affirms the distance that these Jews traveled from just to be in Jerusalem for the Feast of Seven Weeks. But on the approach of Pentecost, which is a festival of, festival of ours, writes Josephus, so called from the days of our forefathers, a great many ten thousands of men got together. Nor did they come only to celebrate the festival, but out of their indignation and the madness of Sabinus and at the injuries he offered them. A great number of them were Galileans and Idumeans and many of them from Jericho and others who had passed over the river Jordan and inhabited those parts. So this was one of the three days in the Jewish liturgical calendar that they would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem. The others being, anyone know? Passover. 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 What's the other one? A little bit more uh, obscure. is the Festival of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Correct. Uh, now, Acts, in the Acts of the Apostles, we see that there were Jews dwelling in Jerusalem during this time. These Jews who had, uh, had come to celebrate the Feast of Seven Weeks were dwelling in Jerusalem. Uh, what can we infer from that? Passover being approximately 50 days prior. I infer that these Jews had come to pilgrimage for the uh, Festival of Passover in the city of Jerusalem, and rather than make the expensive journey back all the way across to Greece, to Rome, uh, to Spain, to uh, Asia Minor, to uh, Persia, rather than make the expensive journey back, I would imagine, I think I can accurately infer this, many of them would just stick around for seven weeks in Jerusalem uh, and stay there for the next celebration uh, of the Festival of Seven Weeks after Passover. Does that make sense? I think that that is the case. Um, wow, I'm, I'm actually on time. We're going to finish early. This is great. Now, there is uh, another important distinction made in Luke's de uh, description of Pentecost. 
Remember, he describes these foreigners as devout, and I emphasized that when I was reading it. As devout Jews, they would have been familiar with the language of the synagogue or the language of the temple. That is to say, they would have been familiar with the language of Hebrew. <clears throat> Peter then, presumably, could have preached so that everyone, or at least the great majority therein, uh, would have understand it, would have, would have been able to accurately uh, understand it in the language of Hebrew, but this is not what happened. Uh, each person heard the gospel in the tongue of his homeland. Um, it's a, a miracle that not only was the, uh, were the apostles able to speak uh, in different tongues, but also that each person at Pentecost was able to hear these uh, words being spoken in their own tongue. Um, I grant that it is possible that the Holy Spirit did this only to ensure those who did not speak the temple language could understand the gospel. Uh, I think it's possible, but I don't think it's probable. I think what makes more sense is that uh, these people who were at Pentecost hearing Peter preach about the gospel, preach about uh, Jesus, the life and ministry of Jesus, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, uh, they heard it in their own tongue. So they could go back to their own homelands and relay uh, the gospel to the people among them where they were living. It's one thing to hear something in the, in the language of Hebrew and try to translate that yourself into the nation where you're living, but I think it's a different thing altogether to hear something in your uh, native tongue and be able to relay that back to your own people. Um, <clears throat> one, one thing that is significant to me about uh, Pentecost, how long was this after the ascension? I mentioned it earlier. 10 days, 10 days, 10 days after the ascension, 50 days after uh, resurrection. <laughs> it wasn't long, right? Uh, and what is God's promise throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New, and throughout what we see throughout the New Testament is that the gospel will eventually reach all nations. Now, how many nations were at Pentecost according to Luke? As many as, as many as 3,000. Uh, but Luke does use the language all nations being present at Pentecost. Now, I don't want to get too involved in the, into hypothetical questions. Well, were the American Indian nations present at Pentecost? It's, it's very possible Luke could be using uh, a literary device called hyperbole uh, when he's discussing this term all nations. But what we see at face value, the language of the Old Testament, all nations being uh, preached to, the gospel being preached to all nations. What we see at face value is that God did not delay after the ascension of Christ. God did not delay the gospel being preached to all nations. These Jews came from all over the world to celebrate the festival of seven weeks, the festival of first fruits. Came from all over the world. And after they had heard the gospel, these 3,000 souls who were saved, where did they go? Back home. And what did they do once they got back home? Exactly. They preached the gospel all over the world. Before Peter had ever gone on any of his missions, before Paul had ever gone on any of his missions, before uh, Barnabas, before all of these apostles, before Andrew had gone down to Africa, before uh, Philip had gone out to India. Before, I, I think that's where... Is it, was it James? I always get them wrong. They... 
The apostles went all over the world. But before that ever happened, these 3,000 devout Jews who were converted, who were regenerated, who were uh, saved at the Feast of Seven Weeks at Pentecost, returned home, preached the gospel. And that is why we see, historically in the book of Acts, that where Peter, Paul, uh, and, uh, and the other disciples and the other apostles go, there is, a, there is already communities of Christians in all of these lands. These uh, 3,000 devout Jews return home preaching the gospel, establishing communities of Christians uh, based on what they had heard from Peter himself at Pentecost. So again, it's, it's significant to me that God did not delay uh, his expansion of the kingdom immediately after the ascension. Um, growing up as a premillennialist, I would not have held this view. Uh, the the premillennialist view says that God's kingdom will only be established once uh, he returns, and that's when uh, the expansion of the kingdom will reach all nations. Uh, more of a postmillennialist or an amillennialist view is one that recognizes that the kingdom of Christ is and has been expanding throughout the world ever since uh, Christ ascended into heaven. And so uh, I, I think this is a very good proof that uh, Christ's kingdom has been expanding and it's been expanding rapidly ever since Pentecost itself, not ever since the uh, advent of television or ever since uh, shortwave radio was invented or ever since the internet was invented. Uh, the kingdom of Christ expanded very, very rapidly. In fact, that is one of the, the puzzling things when historians look at Christianity. One of the puzzling things about Christianity from a secular lens is how in the world did this message spread so far and wide so quickly in the absence of mass communication? It wasn't like these local religions like the Orphists or the Pythagoreans or the uh, Athenians all of these little uh, sects of, of religions in the pagan world that kind of kept to themselves. This religion, on the other hand, blew up. It blew up throughout the world amid mass uh, persecution from the Jews, mainly, which we'll get into shortly, and then later from the Romans. The Jews were not known to proselyte. They were not known to uh, go out into the community and seek new converts. Uh, instead, in fact, <clears throat> to become a Jew, if you were a Gentile, the, the tradition was that you would have to have been turned away three times by a rabbi before they would finally accept you. And uh, so even if you wanted to become a Jew, the Jews would say, nope, you can't be a Jew. Please, I really want to. Nope, sorry. Come on, please. Okay, finally, yes. Okay, yes. No, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. But it, the, the idea was that they would only accept people into Judaism if they were really serious. All right? They didn't want uh, fair-weather fans, so to speak, within Judaism. And this goes back to, if you look in the book of Ruth, uh, in which Naomi, after her husband dies, she has two Moabite daughters, uh, da daughters-in-law, uh, who are Ruth, excuse me, yeah, Ruth and, uh, who's the other one? Orpah, yes. And after uh, her husband dies, she knows that there's a whole bunch of food and prosperity in Moab, and so she tells her daughters-in-law, go back to Moab, be among your people, and live well. 
Orpah and Ruth say, no, we want to go with you. Ruth said, or Naomi says, no, you can't go with me. Go back to your people. Ruth and Orpah say, no, we want to be with you. Naomi says, seriously, go back, live with your people. Being with me is going to be a life of persecution and poverty. Orpah says, okay, I'll go back to my people. Ruth says, no, I want to be with you. And so that's where this rabbinical tradition of turning proselytes away uh, came from. But now we see in the Christian community uh, a, a complete difference, right? This is a proactive message. It's not a reactive religion like Judaism was in which they would uh, thoroughly vet their candidates uh, for uh, the admittance into Judaism. But rather, now we have apostles and we have these 3,000 devout souls, these 3,000 devout Jews going back into their homelands and spreading the gospel all over the world, letting everyone know, all nations know, about the good news that has happened in the city of Jerusalem, namely that good news being that Jesus Christ was born, that he lived, that he ministered to the sick, he ministered to the blind, and that he ministered to all the brokenhearted, and that then he died and was atoned for all the sins of all nations. Not only that, he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And we can say the rest of the Apostles' Creed. <laughs> so this is, this is fascinating to me. When you contrast it with the, uh, with the idea of sort of introverted Judaism of the Old Testament, you contrast this with Pentecost and now where it explodes into all nations, this extroverted uh, proselytizing religion that is you know, not, just, not just tolerating new converts, but is actively seeking them, actively seeking to expand the kingdom of Christ to every tongue, to every tribe, to every people. All right? Not just countries, but every people. And I think that's important to remember as we think about what we, how we can continue uh, the, uh, the idea of Pentecost going into all nations. We do send missionaries to all countries all throughout the world, which is extremely important. But there are nations among us in the United States that are different than our own. And these nations, these peoples, these gentes, these ethnos, they need the gospel just as much as foreign countries do. In fact, I think it could be accurately said that some of these foreign countries have missionaries that could preach the gospel to some Americans. All right? Uh, there are people among us here in the United States that uh, are nations in and among themselves, common peoples with a common philosophical past and a common political goal, and yet they need the gospel just as much as we in our own cultural tradition do. So I hope we don't forget that uh, just because we happen to live in the safety and security of a country that allows the freedom of expression of religion, uh, that we wouldn't become complacent uh, in uh, our, own, uh, our own methods of relaying the gospel and that we would uh, identify nations, peoples, families of uh, individuals that need to hear the gospel and that we would be true messengers of it. All right, any questions? Yes, Paul. I, I would just make a comment, and I, I mentioned this to you the other, the other day, I think as well, too, is I, I, what I find particularly fascinating about uh, Pentecost about the harvest of the first fruits is, you know, it, it just happened to be the start of the church, you know, and, and, and when you look back, 
that these festivals that, that God ordained thousand years before it came to pass. It, it really speaks to, to God being the God of history yeah. saying, look, I am teaching you yeah. through the Old Testament. I'm teaching you through these revelations, through these festivals, through these the, the, through my law, what's going to happen. Yeah. Do, you, do you have a heart to listen? Do you have a heart to hear? Are you paying attention to what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing is by accident either. Nothing by accident. Yes, Ronnie. I have a question. I don't know if it's important, but how did they all hear it in their language? Were there different people translating? No, it was a. Holy Spirit yeah. make these people hear it in their language? Yeah, so. What Peter was saying? That's the. That's the it, it wasn't that Peter was speaking 50 different languages at once, I don't think. It was that whatever was being said in this one language was being heard, was being heard by all of these different nations that were, that were gathered together. Now, Acts does mention that the apostles were speaking in different languages in the house when the Holy Spirit came down. But, I mean, I don't think Peter said the same thing 50 times in different languages, is what, is what I'm saying. No. But there were, you know, as Peter was saying, the Holy Spirit was interpreting in their own language to them, just as he was um, allowing or uh, causing these apostles to speak in different languages at the same time. So it's kind of a double thing, I think. I, you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm reading it wrong. It could be uh, that, that folks were trying to repeat it again because if it's a crowd of three, four, five, six thousand, you know, three thousand came to the Lord, but how many yeah, were there? Tens of thousands, yeah. You didn't have amplification either. So how is it now you're passing this word from you know through through the entirety of this crowd? Yeah, you, know, you look back at uh, was it in, in, in Ezra or Ezra or Nehemiah, where there's it's pretty graphically depicted that there were intermediaries between. Uh, the preacher and the congregation where tens of thousands of people were and they were relaying what was being said up at the pulpit uh, to the rest of the crowd. So that, that could be the case. I don't know. I, was, uh, I, can, I can guess, but I think that it was a miracle either, no matter how you look at it. I do know that they didn't have PA systems. And I don't know. I think they had the fog machine and the, you know, the praise band in the background. And <laughs> the light show. <laughs> Uh, Paul, would you close us in prayer, please? Father in heaven, we come to you in the uh, close of this Sunday school hour. We thank you for this opportunity to be able to look at your word, to be able to discuss, uh, and to be able to learn. We ask you now to be with us as we prepare for service. We ask you to prepare our hearts and uh, prepare the pastor. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.